0: everybody, and welcome to uh, a bonus episode of the Life Starts Podcast. This week, I'm doing something a little bit different. Uh, I'm touching on a topic that has come in in a lot of different ways, a lot of different questions since I started the podcast about the Bible and whether it's trustworthy. And as I often do on this podcast, if you've been following it for a while, is when I have a message that I preach at my local church, Rise City, that I think might connect or fit in with the podcast, I often throw it on here as a bonus episode, which I'm doing here, but in a slightly different way. Because uh, we're actually in a series that we're looking at tough questions. And one of those tough questions that came up was, can we trust the Bible? And this is actually a question that has come at me uh, personally from the podcast, and I've been sort of waiting for an opportunity to do it anyway. But as I was thinking through it, and I was preparing for it, I realized there's kind of like two big sides to this topic about trusting the Bible. There is the question about, maybe like the content or the authors itself, the people that wrote it, um, you know, were they telling the truth? Was Jesus really resurrected? All these kind of things. But then there's also the question of the historical reliability of the book itself. Has it changed over time? Things like that. And I knew that I couldn't cover both of those in one short Sunday morning message, but I also knew that both of those were kind of related to topics I like to cover on Mike Star. So what I decided to do was I decided to devote uh, the Sunday message simply to the second part about the historical reliability of our modern Bible. Is it an accurate reflection of what was originally written? And then I decided to take the second half, which is going to be kind of its own podcast later this week, and look at the question of, were the original authors of the New Testament reliable witnesses? Can we trust what they said? Did it really happen? (laughs) Like, can we really believe them when they said that Jesus was resurrected, these kind of things? So, on this episode, on this bonus episode, you're going to hear the first part of that, a message I gave at Rise City Church uh, about the historical reliability of our modern Bibles. And then in a few days, I'll be releasing a kind of a normal, regular podcast with original content that'll be focusing on the second question. But both of them, this episode and that episode, will be looking at the reliability of of the scripture. Such a huge, important topic. So uh, again, this was recorded from my local church, Rise City, uh, this week. And so some of you may have already heard it, and you can skip over this episode, or you want to listen again. But for those of you who hadn't, uh, I would encourage you to check it out, listen, and then uh, pick us pick back up on the next episode I release here in a few days. All right. Enjoy. Thanks. All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, thanks for coming out on what are just seriously some dangerous driving conditions. I, I know there's some sprinkling outside, You people are brave. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, It's sprinkling. It's sprinkling in San Diego. Uh, Has anyone seen the sun? I've been, uh, I think I lost it. Um, It's been gloomy. But hey, my name is Pete. One of the pastors here and looking forward to just sharing some great, what I think is some truth of this this morning. As I get started, I want to start by just saying, uh, I have this, I've been noticing lately that There's a disturbing trend as I'm getting older in my life. Uh, Along with uh, having to purchase a new Bible with large print, uh, I've also noticed there's this onset of what my doctors are calling dad joke-itis. And for some reason, there's this transformation happening inside of me where like 25 years ago, there is not a chance I would ever tell the most stupidest, ridiculous jokes that are now coming out of my mouth. I swore to myself that I would never do that. And yet here I am. Now, some people think it's because I my office is next to Pastor Robert, which may have something to do with it. It really may. But I actually think there's something more to it. Now, there's almost this like inevitable, uh, almost like evolutionary change, a mechanism that the male brain has somehow formed. Maybe God wired it for us. I don't know. Where it's like it's our way of somehow dealing with the constant questions that we don't know the answers to. or are just sick of answering from our kids. And so we just start making up dumb stuff to stay sane. Like, dad, I'm bored. You're like, eh. hi, bored. I'm dad. You know, they're like, no, did I really just make that joke? Or, you know, I'm like, I'm trying not to be my father, but they're like, can we go anywhere today? And I'm like, we're always going somewhere around the sun. It's like, oh, I just kind of hate myself a little bit. But it's it's, it's my way of dealing with it, I think. And here's the deal. As they get older, I'm finding myself enjoying it even more because it's so much more obvious how much they hate it. (laughs) It's (laughs) glorious when I see their defeated, sagging shoulders and eye roll, knowing I'm not going to be answering their whining, complaining today. It's just kind of beautiful. But recently, one of them caught me a bit off guard where they asked me something I didn't want to answer. And right in mid-sentence of what I'm sure was going to be a brilliantly funny pun, she holds up her hand and she goes, fake news. And I was like, "No, you know," and it created two thoughts in me. The first was I was actually was kind of like a proud parent moment. You know, good. That was clever. Good job. At the same time, it just it had this thought though of my kids are growing up in such a different world than I did. Even the fact that she knew what the phrase "fake news" meant—I think she knew what it meant. Like when I was a kid, yeah, we all probably had dads or older men that would tell us dumb jokes. We'd roll our eyes, but generally speaking. There was a sense inside of me that if an adult or especially someone on the news was telling me something, I just believed it was true. I just accepted it. I fake news. That, that concept didn't even exist in my mind. How could news be fake? And now though, man, different world, right? We have grown up and just been barraged by talking heads and liars and internet scams. Like, constantly. We, we've seen through this facade. We now know that just because you're on TV or have a platform doesn't mean you tell the truth. And now instead of just accepting things, most of us, the first thoughts that we have internally are like that little kid who hears dad about to make a joke. We're like, oh, here it comes, right? We, we question everything. We, we analyze it. Uh, we look for the angle. We assume you're trying to pull an over on me or questioning doubts, like my kids, assuming their dad is jokingly full of it, a lot of times, as soon as someone makes a truth claim, we kind of have this first thought of, I think this person's possibly seriously full of it. And why I think that is such a big deal. And I'm, I'm part of it. I, I'm, I've become very skeptical about people's truth claims things of the time. I live my life, my entire life, everything about who I am, based upon truth claims that are in this book. Like this book dominates my thought process about what I believe is true. And as a Christian, a follower of Christ, who's revealed in this book, everything about who I am, everything about what I believe, how I think I should live, comes to me through these pages. And I just wonder sometimes how many of us that even maybe call ourselves Christians, much less those that are exploring, kind of have that same questionable, is this trustworthy? Or is this just a more ancient form of fake news? And over the past few months, we've been doing this series. We've been calling it Tripping Hazards, where we've been looking at some of these big ideas that kind of trip us up. Like, is Christianity fake news? What about this? What about this? What about this? And this morning, I want to dive in a little bit just about whether or not this book is trustworthy. And that's a huge topic. I can't cover everything in a quick morning like this, but I want to touch on a few elements of it and ask the question about whether this book is actually something I should consider reliable. It'll be, as I told the first service, uh, it's a little bit, you know, classroomy. I got some stuff, but, you know, whatever. You've heard me preach before, probably, you know, I'm that way. But I do think some of this is important. Sometimes it is important just to step back and say, what do we actually know about this? Is it true? Is it reliable? So that's where we're going this morning. And I just want to pray. I want to invite God to lead us and speak to us. And uh, if you're newer to Christianity, maybe you're checking this out, you know, nothing weird. You can sit there quietly or pray with me, or whatever. But for the rest of us, let's just invite God. So hear what he has to say this morning um, to help us grow in our confidence and our faith in him. Let's pray together. God, we're coming to you this morning as people who are wanting to know you. We want to trust you, God. We want to live our lives aligned with what you say is true because we know it's best. But sometimes, God, it's, there's just a lot of questions, especially about your word. Um, is it trustworthy? I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would confirm it inside of us, um, both through truth of history, but also just the fact that you're in it and you're near us. We're listening, and we're ready to hear what you have to say. I pray you give me some grace to just cover a big topic and not bore everyone to death. (laughs) Amen. All right. Uh, When it comes to trusting the Bible, I would say there are two really big ideas, and they're 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 connected, but they're different. On the one hand, we can ask the question: the people that actually wrote it, the people that were with Jesus and wrote down the stuff he said, are they trustworthy? Like, can we trust that they weren't lying, that they weren't confused, that they didn't make it all up, or were just deceived? How can we trust that what they actually wrote is true? And now let me just say, like, that's a huge conversation, Uh, but it's separate from maybe a different question. And the second question is this, okay, even if those people told the truth, is what they wrote down and wanted us to know what's actually in this book? Because this book, this specific book, was published in 2011, (laughs) (laughs) of almost two millennia since those people wrote anything down. So how do we know that this modern English Bible is trustworthy, a true representation of what those people wrote? Those are two different questions. Now, in the interest of time, because most of you don't want to be here till 4 p.m., I had to pick one or the other. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go with the second one first. Um, We're going to kind of skip over the first, and we're going to ask, can we trust our modern Bibles? I want to let you know, though, because it is a big conversation. Maybe there are some of you sitting here this morning, like, well, I'm really curious about the first one. I still want to answer it, but I'm going to do it a slightly different way. Uh, We are going to, I'm going to answer that question on this week's podcast called Like Stars That I Do, where I'm going to look at the early, early writers of the Bible, whether they're trustworthy. You can find that on our website, on our app. Um, You can go to like stars, whatever, whatever, but we'll do that. We also have our Monday answering question time we do every week called Digging Deeper. And if you have any questions or you can text in even now, the whole time I'm speaking, if you want to take a picture of that or whatever, I'll put it up again at the end of the service. And tomorrow I'll meet with a few of the other guys on our staff and we're going to answer any questions you have about the Bible tomorrow. So there'll be two opportunities over this next week to hear more about this because I don't want to leave you hanging, but I had to pick one direction this morning. And so that one main direction I'm going to go today is how accurate is our modern Bible? That's the question today. Um, Not just can we trust the people that wrote it, but this book that we now hold in our hands, or maybe you pick up your phone and read it, is it a reliable reflection? And I'm gonna do that through two ways, right? There are two, I kind of like scoured and thought it through. I think these are the two biggest attacks on our modern Bible. The first is this, how can we trust that what we see in here hasn't changed over time. It's been 2,000 years, right? Different language. How do we know it isn't completely different than what they originally wrote? That's the first question I want to address. And the second question is, even if this is what some of them originally wrote, what about the other books that are supposedly out there? How do we know that the books that made it into the New Testament are actually the books that these guys wanted and someone didn't keep them out? Who decided how to put it anyway? So I'm going to tackle both of those questions little disclaimer, because I got this question immediately after the last service was over. I'm going to focus on the New Testament. And the reason I'm going to focus on the New Testament is this. We don't have a lot of historical information about the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of stuff wasn't written down yet when it was being formed. Plus, as Christians, we believe that Jesus and the early church continually affirmed the Old Testament. Jesus read it. He talked about it. He quoted from it. So for me, and I think it's reasonable to assume, if we can establish that the New Testament is true, it itself affirms the Old Testament. So we really wanna focus on Jesus and his message. Can we believe that what we see in this book today is what he actually taught and said? You with me? All right, so that's what we're gonna do. Two questions, is it has it changed? And how do we know these are the right books? So let's start with the first one, has it changed? My kids like to play this game at dinner. Uh, they, they do it a lot, the little ones especially. And what they do is we, we sit around the table and one of my kids comes up with a word or a phrase and whispers it to the other kid next to them. And the idea is they go around in a circle. It's called the telephone game. You guys heard of this? And what's the the point of the game is, I I don't know there's a point, is just to see how funny it is, how one person will whisper something. You know, my daughter, Cameron, will be like, watermelon. And then it goes through and then it comes to me at the end. It's like, Kellen smells funny. It's like, wait, what what just happened? You know, like how it changes, how it shifts over time. And this is often the example that people give when pointing out one of the problems with trusting the Bible. Uh, Scholars sometimes would call it the, the telephone game dilemma. And the question essentially comes to us is this, is like, how can we trust that this thing, and I'm holding in my hand a modern 2011 NIV Bible, this book is way down here on the line. And the stuff that was written in here was supposedly written way down there. And over time, It's been translated into other languages. It went from Greek to Latin to Old English and other things and then the modern English. And it's been copied and copied throughout all of these steps over 2,000 years. That's true, it has. It's also true that over 2,000 years ago, this stuff was written, we don't have any original writings. There doesn't exist anywhere in the world that we know of the actual piece of paper or scroll that Paul wrote down all that we have are copies. So it's like copies of copies of copies, different languages. And now I'm standing here at the end of the telephone, and it's been whispered and changed. How do I know that what's being whispered into my ear is actually what was said down there? This is the telephone game dilemma. And it makes sense a little bit. And if it didn't make sense, it wouldn't be a valid argument. It is a valid argument. I hear it quite often, actually. Uh, It's kind of, you know, jump on any of the common websites that people want to attack Christianity, the telephone game. You can't trust the Bible. It's changed too much over time. And you think about it, you're like, well, my four kids can't keep one word going in in a minute and a half. How could this entire thing, much less just the New Testament, stay intact over all these thousands of years, copies of copies of copies, languages, changes, all these kind of things? It makes sense. And it's a valid argument until you really start to pick at it. And what I've found is people who use this argument, because it makes sense in your head, well, yeah, I think of it, often keep the argument going because they actually they haven't taken the time to think behind it or they have and they don't like what they found. Because when you really start to unpack this, the reality is it unravels. There are two major flaws with this argument that we're going to see that show that in fact this is Considerably trustworthy, and the telephone game argument doesn't quite work. Two major flaws. So let me explain them to you. First is this for the telephone game to work, for it to be funny and fun, it operates under a principle. And the principle is there is a long line, right? The telephone game does not work with two people. If, if I'm sitting here and they're sitting here and I'm like, watermelon, it's like, oh, it's watermelon. It works because every step along the way is another potential for something to change. With every copy, with every translation, there's another opportunity for an error or a mistake. And the longer this line gets, when I'm standing here, what this person whispers is very likely to be wrong. That's how the telephone game works. However, that's not how our Bibles work. Because when the people, the thousands of scholars who got together to create the NIV Bible, and yes, I love the NIV, sorry. um, There are other good translations. When they got together, it is not true that they were standing way over here at the end being like, oh, tell me. It's not what they did. When it comes to the languages, yes, the New Testament was written in ancient Greek. Nobody speaks that anymore. doesn't mean we don't know it though. Many, many scholars understand and know ancient Greek. We have, we have Greek writings from Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, Plato, Aristotle. There's all kinds of Greek writings. It's a very common ancient language that we've studied. Scholars that aren't just Christians know it. So when we go to translate the Bible, yes, it has been translated into Latin and Old English and French and all these other things, but I'm not sitting here translating it from Old English. I'm not translating it from Latin or other ancient languages. I'm going all the way back to the original Greek and translating it from the initial language. So the idea that it's changed through translations isn't real. That's a made-up argument. Nobody, no good scholar is translating the Bible from Latin or Old English. They're going back to the original Greek. So it makes sense if it's a long line, but I'm not starting right here. I'm not listening to this person. I'm going back here. Along with that, it's not just translations. Let's talk about copies, copies, right? Because I say it, and then you're copying what I said. Yes, yes. If this person writes something, and then this person copies it, and then this person copies it, and this person copies it, there's a very good chance that by the time it gets to me, it's going to be riddled with errors. Guess what? It is. It is. Copies from the 1700s have errors in them. They do, copies from the 1200s have errors in them. Copies from the 400s have errors and mistakes in them. Guess what? We are not translating our Bible from copies from the 1700s, the 1200s or the 400s. We are going all the way back to copies from the first and second century. The telephone game works when it's a long line, right? And I'm only listening to this person at the end. That's not how we put our Bibles together. We ignore all of this. Put all these aside, they don't count. We are going all the way back here. And yes, we don't have any original original writings, but scholars believe we might have actually original copies. We have fragments that we believe are actually from the end of the first century and definitely into the second century. So our modern Bibles are not based on copies of copies of copies. Most of them are based on literal first edition copies. And so they're they're all over the place. But here's the other thing. The Bible is the most copied book in human history. It's the most frequently copied, widely circulated book in all of the ancient world. We have over 5,400 fragments. So when we talk about this idea that uh, we're we're copying things and we're, we're making copies of copies of copies, it's not like we just have one and it just gets passed down. That's a mistake. So again, let me me just do the analogy with you so you're following with me. So I have the telephone game. The telephone game is a long line. And in this long line, you have one person that whispers to one person, that whispers to one person, and whispers to one person. It's a single straight line, right? Well, of course that's, that's gonna get messed up. If this person whispers to me, how do I know if they're right or wrong? How do I know if anything's changed? I don't. At any point along this line, if somebody misses a word, misspells a word, adds a zero, how would you know? You wouldn't, because there's only one line, one copy of one copy. But that is not how we've put our Bible together, because all the way back here in the first century, it was copied more than any other book ever. So we have thousands of copies. So it's not a straight line. It's a web Don't think if one person told one person, what if the first person that heard it told a thousand people and all of those people then copied it and I get to hear and this person says, it's this, but 999 other people say, no, that's not what it is at all. You see the difference? The difference between having so many copies all the way back in the first few centuries means it's not just one person saying one thing to one person. Yes, that's an easy way to make mistakes, but it's when all of these copies are put together. So let me kind of bring this home for you. Um, There are inaccuracies in the copies. There are. Like I said, there are inaccuracies. We know that to be true. We know that uh, a a codex called Vaticanus A from about the 7th century, so somewhere in here, about 600 years, has mistakes in it. There's some some misprints, some, some spelling errors. How do we know that? How could we possibly know Vaticanus A has some mistakes in it? Because we also have Vaticanus B, and we have 5,000 other fragments and copies. So here's what happens. When 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 I was younger, my mom had a job. Uh, She worked from home. She worked for this company. And what the company would do is it, it, it published books. So she would weird things like Star Trek and things. And what this company would do is they would take the original manuscripts. And they would give them to three or four different people like my mom who would take the manuscript home and literally look at it and type it into this like Word program. And this was before a lot of our modern technology back then, like the late 80s. So she would type it in into this program. And then she would give the program to this company. And what they would do is they would take all four disks, floppy disks, and they would take the four copied types and bring them together. And anything that didn't align would show up as an error. Why? Because the chance of one person copying something, making a mistake is very high. The chances of four people making the same mistake on the same word is next to zero. It doesn't happen. So if I have four people copy it, I take all four copies and boom, like nope, 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 nope. Okay, now it's perfect. Four people. We have over 5,000. Think about that the chances of four people copying something and making a mistake is almost zero. We have over 5,000 copies from the first two centuries. And so we have these things called textual variants. I know I found a big word, textual variants. A textual variant is basically when, okay, here's here's a fragment we found in Egypt back in the 600s of the book of Mark or something, right? We can look at it. And we can say, well, actually, here's a fragment of Mark we found in, you know, wherever, Palestine in the second century. And we put them next to each other. And we say, oh, actually, he has this, this word isn't spelled the same as this word. Which one is it? How do we know which one it is? Oh, we have 5,000 other copies. Do all of them have that error? Or do none of them have that error? So we bring all these copies together from the first few centuries and we compare them. So when people say like, oh, it's copies of copies of copies and we're way down here at the end, that would be true if I was actually down here at the end reading one copy. That would completely make sense. It totally unravels when I come all the way back to the first and second century and I'm looking at all these copies from the first few hundred years and comparing them. Suddenly, I'm, I'm making sense of all the things that might be wrong and I'm comparing them. So a textual variant A variant is something that varies. It's something that's different. I can look at them and say, oh, that's not right, and that is right. And I can compare them. I'm not looking at just this one line of people over thousands of years. I'm looking at thousands of people within about 50 to 100 years. Think about the way that just kind of blows this whole game up. It's not fun anymore. It's not fun if I'm gonna whisper the same word to 1,000 people, right? And and if, you know, it, the game doesn't work that way. So we know there are variants. And because we know there are variants, we can fix them. We can actually compare all the copies, bring them all together like those publishers would do with the four people each. We bring them all together and we'd say, 98% of these copies say it this way. 2% say it this way. We're going to assume the 2% made a mistake. You with me? And because of that, Modern scholars, and not even talking about Christians, just most scholars that study these kinds of things, believe that our modern version of the Bible, this thing you see right here, is at least 99.5% accurate and true to the original authors. 99.5% accurate because we are able to compare things so much. But wait, wait, okay. You're talking about the word of God here, 99.5 99.5 still leaves 0.5%. There's a half, I mean, this book is thousands of pages, so a half percent, that's something, right? A half percent of this book might be inaccurate. Ooh, that's harsh. Let's talk about that. First, when I say a half percent of this book might be inaccurate, number one, I'm not saying it is inaccurate. I'm saying we, need, we are open to the possibility that we're not sure because we compared all of these fragments. And it's not 98% versus 2%. It's like 49% versus 51%. We're not sure. There's, a, there's clearly an error, but we're not sure which it is. Um, or it came from the Old Testament. And we're not sure how, uh, for example, in 2 Chronicles, um, it talks about a number of chariots being 7,000. But in 2 Samuel, it says there were 700. It tells the same story. Which is it? 700, 7,000. Clearly at some point in history, somebody added a zero or took away a zero. We don't know. So what do you do with the 0.5%? Well, here's what they do with it. First, it is a general rule that you learn in seminary or wherever you're going to say the Bible, that if there's ever a variant or something we are not sure about, don't build theology on it. Don't make it, we're gonna, this is what curses <laughs> like, let's be paused, let's hold back on that. But the reality is it doesn't matter because the 0.5% that we're talking about in no way involve any form of, theology, teaching, core message. There isn't a single passage in the Bible that's significantly impacted by what we call a textual variant. If David killed 700 charioteers or he killed 7,000 charioteers, we're not really sure, but it doesn't affect our lives, right? It doesn't, those are the kind of things we're talking about. Most of them are small spelling errors. Here's the other thing though. My favorite thing about this is when you open your Bible, which you should, uh, oftentimes You'll see a little note next to words. So here there's a little B next to this word. Uh, and that B is a reference then to the bottom. And sometimes when you follow that reference, you'll read something like this Verse four is sometimes missing from original manuscripts, or some early manuscripts say something different. When you read your Bible, your Bible is completely honest with you about textual variants. We know what they are, we know the things we're not certain about and we tell you no I didn't translate the bible but let's go back to the first question can you trust it what is trust well trust is built upon one hand like okay is it not contradictory is it reliable it's the most historically reliable book in human history sometimes when we're in school we we learn about things like we were learning about julius caesar and even here learning about julius caesar in school i'm not quizzing you don't worry uh There's a book written about Julius Caesar's life that tells us most of that history. The earliest copy of that book that we possess is 900 years after Julius Caesar lived. You know how many original copies we have? Three. We have three copies that are 900 years after it happened. And every school in America teaches it as absolute truth. Nobody says, we're not sure Julius Caesar actually crossed the Rubicon, because it comes from a 900-year-old document. We have over 5,000 fragments from the first century of the Christian Bible. There is not a single historical document like that in all of human history. There is nothing humans possess that has as much historical reliability about the ancient world as the Christian Bible does. Because these people were obsessed with it and they, they, they believed it was God's word. So they copied it and spread it all over the place right away. It wasn't one little copy that got put in a vault and somebody, Indiana Jones, found it a thousand years later. Everybody was copying it and spreading it everywhere right away. So there are just copies everywhere. We're finding them all over the world that come from those first few centuries. It kind of undermines the whole thing. The, the telephone game needs to be hung up on. Sorry, pun. Sorry. Um, thank you. Sorry. I, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So if it's this accurate and it's trustworthy, it's both accuracy, but also honesty. If my Bible didn't admit there's problems, I would struggle. Can I give you a really hard one? Some, this is going to flip some of you out. Um, in, the book of, uh, in the book of Mark, Sorry, this wasn't in my notes. I'm just going to do this anyway. Um, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the very end of the book. Um, you really can't see this very well, I don't think. Sorry. There's chapter 16. Chapter 16 ends at verse eight and talks about trembling bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Then my Bible has a line. And then it says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient writers do not have verses nine through 20. This whole section right here. And it's in parentheses. Modern scholars think that the last sections of Mark were added by some probably priests in the second or third or fourth century because they wanted it not to end on such a cliffhanger. But it probably wasn't original. And you might say to yourself, well, that's just proof the Bible's not trustworthy. No, it wouldn't be trustworthy if I didn't see that note telling me it probably wasn't in there. The note telling me it's in there makes it trustworthy. We're honest. This might not exist. Here's another hard one for you. I didn't say it's the first service. You guys know that famous story where a woman's caught in adultery and they bring her before Jesus and they said, she should be stoned. And Jesus is like, well, he who's without sin, throw the first stone. And you're like, yay, Jesus. That's probably not original of the Bible. Uh, it, it, most of your, like an NIV Bible will say, most early transcripts do not have this passage. We believe likely that it was a story that people told and it was passed down. And it was a familiar, orally transmitted. And maybe like after the first century, someone's like, we should put that in because we believe that happened. Uh, we're not sure. And some of you are like, oh my gosh. Listen, the reason why I can say that to you is because my Bible told me that. I didn't get on some, oh, God's not real YouTube channel. My Bible told me that. Because it's trustworthy. Because I can depend on it because it's honest and it tells me the truth. Again and again, this book tells me where it isn't Sure. And never once does this book tell me something it's not sure of that deeply affects my ability to follow Jesus. It is the most reliable, trustworthy, historical document in human history. It's amazing. Okay, I just spent way too long on that. Ooh, part two. No, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this, and you're going to get your kids. Don't worry. Um, okay, <laughs> don't worry. All right. What, though, about the fact that even if it's reliable, how do we know that the books that are in here, because, you know, the New Testament is made up of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the letters. How do we know that these are actually all of them, that there weren't other ones? Why are these in there and other think mean, Maybe you've heard like the, the, the Gospel of Thomas sort of things. About 15 years ago, the Da Vinci Code was this big famous book and movie that came out. And in the book, the whole, the whole point of his story was, you know, back in like the fourth century, there was this secret council of church leaders who got together and said, okay, boys, we're gonna decide what books to call the Bible and anything that doesn't agree with us, we're gonna, we're gonna burn those and throw them out and just, just do the ones that keep us in power. You know, it's all a big conspiracy, man. If you're sheeple, if you read this thing, you know, like what's going on here? Who decided what they should be and how do we know we have the right ones? But like, go this quick because I have to, and it's gonna be okay. First of all, okay, you may have heard this word. The Bible is often referred to as the canon, not canon like fire a gun. It comes from canis, which means reed. as this long thing that would grow up in the ground, like a, a reed in the, in the wind. They would take these because they always grew the same, light, same length. They use them as measuring sticks. So a canis was a standard. It was a unit of measurement. So when we call this book, this book, the canon, what we are saying is, we believe that the books that are in here are the books that are supposed to be in here, that meet the standard. And that anything that anyone says, well, what about this one, does not meet the standard and shouldn't be in here. So it is true that there was a council that met at the end of the fourth century in Rome that sort of stamped and put their approval on this current list of books. The, books, the, the final list that we have was officially recognized in Rome at the end of the fourth century. It is not true that they decided which book should be in. That's historically inaccurate. If you've ever heard anyone make that case, if you've heard somebody say it, oh, the council decided at Nicaea. No, they didn't. It wasn't even at Nicaea, it was at Rome. No, they did not decide. What they did at that council was officially recognized the books that the church had already been using for centuries. They simply said, these are the ones that we recognize that we've all been using, we hold to, here's the finalized list. That's all they did. So where did this collection of books come from and why weren't other books in it? Because yes, there were other books. There was a gospel of Thomas, a gospel of Mary Magdalene, a gospel of Peter. We had epistles to the Alexandrians, the epistle to the Laodiceans, not just Ephesians and Philippians that are in your Bible. Why weren't those included? Was it a council? No. The way that this happened is actually explained to us. It hasn't been lost to history. We have a document from the second century which is way back here, about 50 to 100 years after Jesus, called the Moratorian Fragment. And yes, you will be tested on that later. Spelling will matter. Uh, but the Moratorian Fragment is, a, is this letter this guy wrote. We don't know who it was. talking about some of the questionable books. The most important one he talks about is called The Shepherd of Hermas, which is actually a great book. It's a really good read. In it, the Moratorian Fragment says, listen, The Shepherd of Hermas is great, but it is not standard. It is not part of the inspired word of God. Why not? Also, I don't think Thomas or Laodicea or these other questionable books, those do not fit. They don't belong. Here's why. And he then tells us why. But it's important as you if you ever do want to read it, you can find it online, Wikipedia, whatever. The author of this fragment doesn't say, I have decided on criteria you all will follow. No. He talks about certain books using criteria that they obviously already followed. So he's like, hey, we all know this is how we decide. These don't measure up. So what was the criteria? How did the early church decide? Well, they basically had four things and we see them in the Moratorium Fragment. He talks about all four of them. And we also see these in other places in history. And again, remember, we're not talking about the late 300s here, Secret Church Council, Christian's power. We're talking long before Christians had any power, before before Christianity was the official government religion. We're talking about when Christians were still being thrown to lions for holding on to these passages. We're talking about people who uh, when you had a copy of the scriptures, the way that the Romans and the Jews who were still persecuting them tried to do that is they would come after the writings. If they could get rid of the writings, they felt they could stamp out the religion. So they would come to the leaders who often had the copies in their house and they would say, here's the deal. Give us your writings. Give us these scrolls. Give us a copy of that letter Paul wrote you so we can burn it. And if you, if you do, we'll leave you alone. If we don't, we'll burn you. And the, they had to ask this question. They'd say, well, hold on. I've got like four fragments here. I've got I've got Paul's letter. I've got Matthew, and I've got this this Thomas thing. Which of these should I be willing to die for? How do I know I should build this? And they had this question. The question was: Should I take this document and hand it over to these Roman people? Stratodore? Should I trade trade or, That's really the word traitor. Should I give it away or should I hold on to it and die for it? What's the criteria? How do I know this book belongs? in here and not off on the pile heap. Okay, four things. I'm gonna go quick. First, who wrote it? Who wrote it? We believe that to trust it, to trust it, it needs to be somebody who was either there or knew somebody that was there. So the most important thing was, was it an apostle? Was it one of the, the men who actually walked with Jesus? If we're gonna believe that everything they're saying is true about Jesus, did they know Jesus? Or were they somebody down here, like 100 years later, who wrote it? Now, that doesn't mean it was only apostles, but they also said, did the person know an apostle or was commissioned by? So Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, did not know Jesus personally, but he was a translator and followed and knew Paul. Same with Mark, he knew Peter. So the, other, the ones that aren't an apostle were people that knew apostles. And so the authorship matters and we trust it. That was the most important criteria. The second is related to it. When the Meritorian fragment is talking about the shepherd of Hermas, this tells it actually helps us because we know when he wrote it. He says, this book was written, and he uses this phrase, in our time. When was the book written? So what he's saying is, he's, live, he's sitting here in the second century. And he's saying, guys, we have the shepherd of Hermas, and some of you are questioning whether it should be in your Bible or not. Here's the deal. It was written here, not back there. And if it was written here, that means the person who wrote it Wasn't there. (laughs) They, They didn't know Jesus. They didn't talk to an apostle. So even if it has some good stuff in it, we can't trust that it's truly the words of Jesus. And because we can't trust it's the words of Jesus, because they weren't there, let's not make it part of the Bible. We'll only trust the people who were there in that time. So the general rule of thumb was was it written in the first century? Written in the time of Jesus in the early church? If not, throw it out. And these two things matter because. All these other books that get thrown at you, if you're talking to someone who's trying to argue about, oh, what about Mary Magdalene and the epistle to Laodiceans? When were they written and who were they written by? None of them were written in the first century, and none of them were written by the people that they say wrote them. The, the Apostle Thomas did not write the gospel of Thomas. That's historically just fact. He didn't write, it happened way later. And the early church knew that. They're like, we don't, that wasn't written by Thomas. Someone lied and put his name on it. We're not going to put that in the Bible. So who wrote it and when they wrote it? Mary Magdalene did not write the gospel of Mary Magdalene. It showed up in the late second century, almost 120 years after she was alive. So there were pseudonyms written under false names much later. And the early church said, no, we're not having that." The other thing though, is they say, well, what's actually in it? What does it say? Does its message align with what we do know? Within the first century, uh, in, in 110, you had a guy named Papias who wrote, we're blessed by God to have the four gospels. So within 20 years of John, the Apostle John's life, they decided there were only four Gospels. And they look at those, they said, well, we know these are the four books. We've seen them, we've had them for 50 years. Does what you're writing align with these four books? Does the message actually ring true? And you had all kinds of crazy stuff popping up later in the late, two or three centuries after Jesus. Questions about whether Jesus was fully God, was he actually just a spirit, all these kind of different things. And a lot of these books argue that way. And some of them are just weird. So, Real quick, and I know I'm running late here, but I just want to do this for you. In Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, I know I'm talking about a book from 20 years ago, but it's okay. He talks about he. It's been a long time to read it. The idea is that this church council didn't like women and wanted to like keep the men in power, and so they kept out any books that might disagree with them and you know whatever and be male dominated. Here's the thing. It cracks me up when I heard that. I want to read from you a passage from the gospel of thomas this is from the gospel of thomas you ready for this all right simon peter said to the other disciples mary should leave us for females are not worthy of this life <laughs> there you go jesus jesus said look i am going to guide her in order to make her male great jesus so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males because we all know that women aren't real people glory for every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like Jesus? How stupid is that? Like think of that. Oh, I'm reading this because they kept the gospel of Thomas out to control their power. The gospel of Thomas told them to keep women out. (laughs) It was, if anything, they should have put it in. That would have been the first gospel. Hey, we ate women. All right, gospel of Thomas, read it. It wasn't some secret Christian cabal rejecting Thomas for political reasons. The early church looked at him and said, that's nonsense. That's stupid. Jesus elevated women. Jesus had female disciples. Get that out of here. We don't believe that. Nobody read that book in the first century, second century, and thought it was true. And then the last thing is this, where did it come from? And where was it being read? And by where, I mean this, it was recognized that within the first few centuries, you started having these little groups of people and weird small communities that were really loving certain books. And the church community said, hold on, hold on. If there's just some small groups of people out in a corner somewhere reading something, we really, really question it. That doesn't sound trustworthy. If something is truly the word of God, it should be read by everybody everywhere. Are all Christians from Jerusalem to Rome reading this book? Or is it just a little small group of people in a cave somewhere in the Middle East? If that's the case, get it out of here. Listen, when you hear these arguments, oh, what, about this? what about Mary Magdalene's gospel? The whole world was not reading Mary Magdalene's gospel. Most people didn't know it existed. We found it in a cave a thousand years later. It was like nobody was really reading it. It's nonsense. And if the general rule of thumb was we'll only accept something if we're all reading it, How could one council of leaders get together and make a decision for the whole world? They couldn't. You couldn't do that today with the internet. You still couldn't do it. How could one group of people decide for the whole world? They didn't. It was the whole Christian community around the world was already reading these books and having their lives changed by it. And at one point, this council just said, hey, we recognize these are it. They had a few arguments. Their biggest argument, just to be honest, trustworthy, is with the book of Revelation. Some of them weren't quite sure about it. But eventually they said, no, the church has been reading it. We're going to put it in. But for the most part, the books are what they were. They're trustworthy. So I firmly believe that what you have in your hand when you pick up a Bible or you open on your phone is an extremely reliable, trustworthy copy representation of what the men and women who followed and knew Jesus wanted to tell you and I. Again, were they trustworthy? Different conversation. And I'm gonna jump into that on a separate podcast this week. You can check that out. Uh, Go on our website, you'll find it. I'll put it on our Facebook page, all that kind of stuff. I'll get into that topic. But I always wanna say, this is trustworthy. What you have is a good reflection. But I have two minutes, so let me end with this. Some of you are like, oh, we're leaving? Not yet, not yet. (laughs) This is fun. I don't know, call it what you want. I sometimes enjoy these arguments and sometimes I need them. Sometimes my brain needs some historical reliability. Is this factual? Is there concrete evidence here? Uh, I can't, I, and, I, and I apologize I'm stepping on toes. Like the Book of Mormon is a historical contradiction all over the place. It says things that are literally impossible. I, I, I can't have that. If that was the Bible, I would struggle. Thank God it's not. <laughs> it is extremely reliable historical. But can I just be honest with you? This isn't why I give my life to this book. This book is trustworthy because I picked it up when I was a stupid drunk frat boy in my early 20s going nowhere and it changed my life. This book is is trustworthy because when Jesus speaks and I read it, it does something inside of me that stirs me on to something better than I ever had before. This book is trustworthy because there are millions and millions of people around the world today and over the past 10 to 2,000 years who have picked it up and read it and found the kind of life that God created us for. This book is trustworthy because its message changes your life. And I want to challenge you. If, if this helped, great. If you're like, oh, I needed some of that, great. But I hope if anything, it didn't just be like, okay, now I have historical information. I hope it challenges you. Say, I should pick this up and read it because the purpose, the point is not so you can win arguments, that you can get in fights with people on Facebook about how oh, historically accurate your religion is. It is. The point is that this will transform your life if you read it and do what it says. If you read it and do what it says, you will find the life that God created you for. And the stupid kid that was going nowhere and had nothing going on found it and it changed the way I think. It changed the way I look at life. It changed the way I look at marriage and parenting families and being a a husband and work and all the things about my life. This book has altered and changed for the better. And I trust it with my life, literally. (laughs) I know there's so many of you in this room that do as well. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm just on the fence, man, open it up, give it a try, see what happens. I dare you, see what happens when you start to apply the words of Jesus to your life. You will see something incredible happening. And that's why I do this. I don't do this for a living to stand up here and sound smart. I'm not that smart. This is all from Wikipedia, people. You can find the same (laughs) crap I do. I do this because it changed my life and I feel like God's called me to say the same to you, to say we can all have our lives changed together through the word of God, but we have to be willing to pick it up and read it. Not just talk about it, not just nod our heads when someone gives a good message. Pick it up. If you don't have one, get one. Take one off the tables in the back. They're free. They're like, just like $9 on Amazon. Like get a Bible and read it and let it change your life the way it's changed mine and so many other people in this room. Cool. you stand with me? you got and I burn